The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org and on that website you'll find all kinds of weekly blog posts, discussion forums and all manner of ways to get involved in the conversations about fantasy cinema uh, and the medium of animation. You can find us on Twitter at fananimresearch, that's F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, or you can find us on our Facebook page, uh, same thing, fan and in research uh, at Facebook, or just search it in the, in the search engine. Many ways to get in contact, please do get in touch with us and take part in the conversations, but for now, please do enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the uh, shiny brand new episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. So this, uh, for this episode, it's sort of an episode of firsts in many ways. It's our first visit to the MCU or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is also the first time that we have looked uh, specifically at a superhero genre, which I think will hopefully open up some new, new questions for us as we engage with Black Panther. So Black Panther, a recent uh, 2018 American superhero film based on, on the character from the Marvel comics. And, and so a film that I guess is part of a wider network and we'll try not to... I feel like this could be a spoiler-heavy podcast. They're so. always spoiler-heavy podcasts. This is I true. Think, I think we should say at this point, spoiler alert for now and forever. Yeah, and we'll see you in 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, and so what we're going to try and do is think about the film in relation to lots of different sort of competing areas really, looking at its use I think of special effects and digital animation more broadly, but also perhaps some of the interrelationships between science fiction and fantasy, looking a bit at Afrofuturism, so it'll be a rip-roaring ride through Black Panther as we try to avoid or embrace spoilers depending on how we feel sure. over the next 45-50 minutes. It'll all be the f- also be the first time that listeners finally get the opinion of what two white British middle class people think about this movie. So at that's last. at last, eh? Mm. So uh, we are certainly aware that we're going to talk, a, a, hopefully, a little bit about identity politics today, and we are aware of the problem in the room. Um, but we'll still try and talk as sensitively as we can about the issues and and discuss what's quite just you know a really rip roaring fun movie. I thought that that has things to say. And says them in an entertaining way. You can't ask for much more than that. And we'll we'll offer our little two cents on on the relationship between fantasy animation and the way it says those things. So that's sort of what the next fifty minutes have in store. So actually, you've you've nicely <laughs> hijacked my my first kind of question, which is uh, stems from one of the rare occasions where I've seen a film that you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, having just watched Black Panther for I think the the um, third time on my, on my part, I wanted to get your your view as as a as a fantasy man, as a fantasist, what you thought of the film. Because when we when we sort of bat um, ideas about what kind of podcast we're going to do, and we we take uh, advice and, and recommendations from from listeners about where we might where we might go with fantasy animation, and so Black Panther was one that was always at the back of my mind. And but then I was watching it, and then I thought, okay, so how much is this? Is, is this a good case study for thinking about fantasy and animation? Certainly on my part, I've got lots of scribbles about CGI and, and digital stuff. But fantasy, how, how does this film... First of all, did you enjoy the film, given that you're, you know, I presume you're well-versed on your Marvel. Uh, did you enjoy the film, but also what, what's the film saying, not saying, engaging with, when it comes to fantasy? Yeah, I did enjoy the film. I, um, yes. I have that, sla- that classic... Marvel experience where I enjoyed it less the more it went on and the more things exploded in front of me in epic proportions. Uh, the moment the rhinos came out and started running at people, I thought, yes. okay, we've now crossed the Rubicon. We've, uh, we've, we've let loose the rhino uh, and we're into space alien hovering territory here. But I did enjoy it. I, um, I, and, I, and it conjures up lots of interesting questions about the role of fantasy. I, I guess... Superhero movies in general, of course they're fantasies. They're perhaps the most popular fantasies that are uh, existing in our culture at the moment. Um, And I think what's very interesting about superhero movies is they're almost like the myths and legends of old in that that I think a lot of people 
th th their canvas is so broad in every sense of the word that people can bring to superhero movies a lot of their own moral, ethic, ethical, political baggage and the good ones will reward that process of dialogue whereby uh, if you start to try to take the film seriously it responds in kind uh, rather than it just be sort of big smashy smashy entertainment and I think this film definitely has that it's it's a film that um, I will think about beyond this podcast and will reflect on but I think there's some very interesting issues obviously in terms of race in terms of identity but but more broadly fantasy as a political tool and the way you um, articulate fantasy um, so yeah it's, it's, it's a thumbs up for me and a Good, I've got something to say about it. So that's always helpful when I've got to do a podcast. Well, this is true. Um, I guess so. I guess what we're dealing with really is, is an interesting issue where we've we're obviously um, in previously we've spoken about fantasy and animation mm -hmm. as genres, not genres. That sort of relationship that they are they are have been considered genres. We might might find it useful to think of them as genres, but equally there's resistance from um, scholars, writers, animators who perhaps think that animation isn't a genre, fantasy isn't a genre. And here we've got a crossover with science fiction and we've got a crossover with the, su the superhero genre, which, uh, as you mentioned there, is, is sort of the genre of uh, 21st century Hollywood in many ways. So the first Marvel movie... And actually what's interesting about the, the superhero movies is they sort of come in waves after... 2000, 2001, whether it's an active response to 9-11. To but what's interesting is that there are two waves of, of superhero movie. There is the kind of the 2008, post-2008 Iron Man wave of, of films, of which this film is part of that broader interconnected network. But at the same time, the, let's not forget the first wave of superhero movies. So the early 2000s, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, as well as... Uh, Catwoman, I guess, mm -hmm. or uh, the Batman Begins movies, or uh, Elektra, Daredevil. So this is, I guess this is uh, coming out of a filmmaking context where the superhero movie is, and I suppose that first wave of movies wasn't particularly popular, and, and, and it was really the Iron Man movie and the subsequent Marvel Cinematic Universe that sort of raised to a higher pitch of emphasis the superhero. Well, that and, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy, right? Yes. And I, I think that's interesting thinking about this movie in that... Uh, that for the initial sort of Iron Man, I think it's called Marvel Phase One, yes. right? Uh, see, see, I've done my homework. Yeah. Uh, Marvel Phase One very much positions itself as an as an antithesis of yes. the Dark Knight. So, if the Dark Knight was brooding and politically aware, um, this was um, a roller coaster ride. It was uh, jolly and and fun, sort of the Iron Man movies. And I think what we're, we're entering now with the Marvel movies is a, is a period where I guess because they're so popular and so ubiquitous and so um, confident in their own commercial success that they're starting to take a little bit more uh, risks or mm. maybe that's not the right word because I don't think making a film that's jolly and got lots of humour in it is necessarily unrisky um, but certainly the films themselves are starting to diverge a little bit from one another that they're, they're starting to have their own tone this is a very very different movie from say Thor Ragnarok which came out a few months before it um, and I think because of that there are they are more susceptible to the individual filmmakers and what they've got to say, uh, and I think that's this being a Ryan Coogler uh, movie is, is interesting in that respect. In that I, I saw it very much as a as an extension of Coogler's themes in his other movies, which again are like things like Creed are taking big franchises and somehow putting a personal spin on them, and and I think I think that's what was, is is happening here. Yeah, uh, I mean, what I was gonna gonna re reflect on is that yeah. now we're at a, a period where the Marvel version or the Marvel iteration of the superhero movie, which is the superhero movie, sure. um, after that first initial wave of superhero films, then the Dark or, or Christopher Nolan's Batman films as the the sort of tipping point, and then we're into something like Iron Man. Iron Man is very political. It's about the war on sure. terror. It's sure. it's it's coming right at the time of uh, uh, Obama's election. It is there's I mean there's a lot going on with regards to the film to be read politically, but clearly superhero movies are important spaces within contemporary Hollywood, pr predominantly where we can read into, and hopefully we'll try and do that a little bit with with Black mm -hmm. Panther to read about how the film sort of can be seen as, a, as a, a work of, I don't know, cultural criticism in the way that it uses the relationship between science fiction and fantasy to examine subject positions of black identity and through big ideas about Afrofuturism. But this is all, this is all to come. Yeah, well, I, and I think the only thing to say on that is that I think it's interesting that this film was so widely talked about 
through that lens. Yeah, yeah, and not that's probably something to do with the African American uh, issue in America at the time. It's a very hot button topic. Um, this was noteworthy in being the big, the first Marvel movie with a with a black protagonist with a pretty much all black cast. Um, so that was noteworthy. Um, but you're right, actually, there are other there are other. Marvel movies that are actually quite politically aware and sensitive. Um, Civil War is is, yeah. is similar in that regard. Um, so you're right, actually. Maybe it's unfair to think of this as somehow a breakthrough in that, but it's certainly a movie that, for for one reason or another, courted that kind of interpretation. Right. A- absolutely. And and actually, a lot of the the kind of popular and critical discourse around the film, interview, cast interviews, um, stuff on the red carpet, all this really um, sort of the hype around the film was. Questions are really were were aimed at the cast or, or asked of the cast about how did it feel to be part of something? Yeah, and the re- the response was certainly from from Martin Freeman, who's um, plays a very small role in the in the film. Um, and as a white actor, he said it it felt he felt kind of an honour to be part of. He felt like he was part of something. This was a a film that was about. And what's it? But what's interesting about something like Black Panther is, I suppose, the flip side is that do we ask questions of a film like Iron Man or Civil War? Um, as intrinsically about whiteness and white identity in a way that, you know, the cast of Black Panther when they're asked, how does it feel to be in a film about black black identities? Yeah. A lot of the responses, well, this is for us, it was just a film. Yeah. It was just a film. It was just a, and so yeah, I think we can read read a lot, hopefully into the movie without doing it a disservice and interpret some of the ways in which it it positions blackness and and technology as not oppositional. Um, components or, or elements of its narrative but something that frames the use of fantasy and animation together by attaching it to kind of racial yeah. identities yeah I, i'm glad you end on that actually because i think that's what i wanted to say because otherwise i was going to get to get scared about the mammoth task that we've got to do <laughs> over the next 40 minutes is that i guess what we'll try and do here is uh if the film is doing something yes. whatever that something is it is doing it through the interplay between fantasy and animation contained within the film. The film is so CGI heavy, it's so ingrained in a a story that's quite clearly not of this world, and that interplay has to be where we find some of the answers as as to what the film is doing. So if we can articulate that a bit better, the the, the stuff of what the film is doing, then maybe other listeners can... uh, uh, get in touch and tell us what that doing therefore leads to in terms of um, the politics of this thing because because uh, yeah I think I think that's the only thing I feel confident talking about is how it's using some of these tropes and uh, impulses that I'm familiar with yeah great so let's we better get going then aren't we yeah let's lots let, to cover let's let's go um so in terms of the opening so the opening of the film yeah. uh, there's a short sort of uh, prologue which is done through voiceover mm-hmm. which explains the sort of the terrain literally sets the scene uh, and maps out the origins of Wakanda which is this sort of you know um, fictional nation state um, its relationship to the five uh, African tribes who are warring over a particular meteorite that contains what will ultimately is not even the MacGuffin it's more than the MacGuffin mm-hmm. it's the it's the central plot um, kind of device which is vibranium so it's really about the opening sequence is really about setting up the the specificity of Wakanda as a location, its relationship to, uh, I guess, a fantastical event, its relationship to vibranium. And then we jump to 1992 yeah. in Oakland, California. Before, before we get to Oakland... Okay, sorry. Because I'm intent on making this podcast last seven hours. Uh, the prologue is very interesting. And I, I'm not as familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Units as you are. Do any other... Superhero movies in this stable start with a prologue. This is a good question, and I thank you for asking me this yeah, question. Yeah, it's time for Alex's impossible question. As I rack my brains and go back through... Let's, let's say they don't, although now I've said that, I think maybe the last Thor movie might have started with something similar. Yes. I'd but be... actually, that doesn't that doesn't dissipate my point at all, actually. If, if the Thor movies do it as well, it's just interesting. Prologues are... As soon as I'm watching a prologue, I settle into research mode because I have watched so many movies that start with a three-minute, vaguely incomprehensible prologue telling the backstory of a world. Um, watch any 1980s fantasy movie and they will start in this way. Uh, so as soon as this starts, I'm, I'm, I'm clicking into the kind of grammar this is using. And prologues are really interesting because they're, they're actually quite a cinematic thing in terms of fantasy storytelling because most fantasy storytelling on the page doesn't need a prologue because the world is either introduced through maps 
or backstory, or in the case of J.R. Tolkien, a series of companion uh, texts, or it's drip-fed slowly throughout the story. Films don't have that luxury, so they have to start with these sort of quick, immersive, um, quite often confrontational bits of backstory that try to create a sense of mystique. And, and what it does is it firmly roots you in this sort of mythical... Uh, storytelling mode we were talking a bit last week about fantasy as a storytelling mode that announces its own process of narration and it's doing that here and it also reminds me of a, of, um, a theorist called John Clute talks about fantasy as having a quality of the twice told about it so fantasy stories feel like they're stories that have already been told and by telling this prologue set in this world you feel like you're hearing a story that's already been told and, and that, that kind of Gives it this mythic sensibility before we even get going, before well, we even get to Oakland. Well, so on that note, yeah. given that this is a franchise film and a, fr- a part of a franchise that has been sort of renowned for its intertextual references, this idea of a fantasy film or fantasy stories being twice told, in some cases, is true of the Marvel films because they literally repeat scenes. Mm-hmm. And so you see scenes and sequences that you've seen previously in other Marvel films. Um, and then, re- and then re-see them again as they are framed in new contexts. So we are literally, I guess there is a, a sense of the twice told about Marvel beyond the fact that w- kind of the criticisms yeah. of the, of the, of the fran- of franchises more broadly is that there is a kind of repetition and, and franchises are always torn between continuity and, and rupture and difference. Here we, we see, certainly in, in Black Panther, there is a, a moment, I guess about 10, 15 minutes in, that gestures back explicitly to events in... Captain America Civil War and so it it has a narrative function and a diegetic function as well yeah sure and, it, and it's one of those it rewards those that know it and satisfies yes. those that don't because it also fills the job of doing some storytelling and things like that I mean I would also add to the issue of prologues I mean I'm sure listeners can can correct me on this and I'm sure they will vitriolically yeah. as I get get Marvel wrong but my sense is that there may very well be, be prologues that begin Marvel films but actually what's more important are the bits at the end of the movie. And so I imagine yeah. I imagine that actually prologues don't exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or perhaps hold the same function because what the film actually begins in the film before. Certainly a prologue of this kind where yeah. what I'm talking about with the sort of the voiceover, yeah, the, yeah. this is the world in a time of legend, all that kind of, you know, you, you all know that classic sort of... Well, there's a line, tell me a story. Isn't it a child, a father and son? The father is telling the child the story of Wakanda Mm -hmm. and the child says, tell me a story and and we're off. Absolutely. So I think that puts us very firmly in a fantasy space um, and and all Marvel cinematic films operate in a fantasy space. Superhero movies are fantasies. But when I'm saying fantasy, I'm sort of, you know, Mm. in that sort of mythic, mythic fantasy template. You know, this is a story about a, a legend in the sort of Iliad sense of the world and and it's interesting that that you know this is what the, the idea of the twice told is rooted in is that fantasy is a form of populist oral storytelling so quite often it literally has to repeat itself in order to um in order to be telling its story properly because audiences forget audiences need reminding so there's a there's a certain overlap there that's interesting because actually yeah. the whole film is is there are bits of it where you hear history from within the film told again and from new perspectives and actually this is what really happened um in oakland in 1992 which we i promise we will get to oakland in 1992 um but no you're right that sort of that framing narrative where the father is telling the son the story of wakanda and they talk about keeping the truth of their people hidden um and then the little boy says do we still hide and so i think there's a lot yeah oh yeah absolutely and the and the we'll get there now and then the the juxtaposition to oakland california we're there and it kind of in those first five minutes, I think, does what the rest of the movie wants to do with with ideas of black identity and the, what it gives. It gives the vision of contemporary US African-American identity, particularly male identity. I, would yes. argue. I mean, there's lots of really interesting representations of, of female identity in all this, but, but the, the, the central... Uh, sort of triad or the central dialogue that the film enacts about black identities between the hero Black Panther uh, and the the antagonist Killmonger um, and they're two very masculine male characters with, 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 with masculine concerns so which is interesting so we jump to sort of this urban contemporary yes. space but this urban contemporary space has been given this story world where about, whereby we can see beyond the space they're in 
we're in Oakland, California. We're in this trapped, uh, you know, the, the world of the wire, the world of um, drug cartels, a lot of all this. But within that, there is this other space operating just off the frame where where fantasy lies, which is, I think, what the film's trying to do overall, right? It's to give a sense of black identity, a coherent fantasy of another space and another time. So is that that sequence, and if we are going to now pitch up residents in Oakland in 1992, mm-hmm. that um, what struck me about that, as you say, the, the, it's a very urban setting, that we begin on a, a basketball court and, and children are playing basketball, and then we, we go into a tower block. It's kind of rough and ready, and, and um, there are certain icons and images at play as we get to know a little bit about the kind of hostile environment that this might be. And then when we're inside the apartment, you have what look to be two young males organising some kind of bank heist or a robbery, and there are guns on the on the, um, on the the table. And it seems... I don't know. It, I, I don't know how I feel about that, but there's a certain um, image of, of black identity and black male identity being framed that is then immediately made strange yeah. mm-hmm. through... And this is this is a, a quote from one of the characters in the film. The doorbell rings, or there's a knock at the door, uh, and one of the characters goes to look and see who it is, and makes reference to Grace to Grace Jones. That yeah. there are two Grace Jones type women outside, and suddenly we have two women enter into this environment that are kind of wearing tribal robes, and they hold spears, uh, and then suddenly we 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 have this collision between the real and the fantasy, and so. That kind of plays out within one room. Then it plays out in vertical space because then you have the um, spaceship that just appears and, mm-hmm. and does some does some things and flashes and whatnot. So, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting way of using the fantasy to, yeah, make strange, destabilize, to do something with that image of of black male identity in in the early nineties. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think actually that's the 1992 setting is crucial in yeah. that we have it, the issues of, well, we have both the cinematic le- legacy of, of, you know, this is the era of Boys in the Hood and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And also the sort of real life legacy of things like Rodney King. And this is all early 90s stuff here. This is the, you know, the, the rise of hip hop, all that kind of things. Um, and you're right. I like it, what you're saying. Actually, you're right. Is that immediately the fantasy space questions the uh, normalcy of that action it makes that at part of the fantasy world and says and says to us as an audience things that kind of representation is not what we're going to do yeah. here um, and that kind of representation is false within the story context because it is these two characters are revealed to be Wakandan uh, sort of double agents and things like that so actually even you know within the diegesis of the movie this is a false representation that we've been um, asked to Assume. And then actually if the film then pulls at that thread, what happens is the Wakandan people reveal themselves to be really resistant to violence mm-hmm. and they really don't want to use the technology that they've enhanced and developed um, and they're kind of pushed into a corner to be able to, to use that. So that juxtaposition between machine guns at the start and then kind of simple spear work. There's some excellent spear work in this film. Sure. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, of course there is. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Technology is an interesting one. Yes. Should we talk about it then? Well, so what I was going to... My, my next note after mm-hmm. Oakland 1992, uh, the sort of double prologue sequence, mm-hmm. is I've just written technolo- technologized spectacle. Um, and clearly the... Fan- so here we have a moment where the fantasy kind of intrudes into the um, uh, urban setting of mm-hmm. 1992 America. But we then are taken on a journey as spectators into Wakanda itself as a, as a separate world that is partitioned off but is masquerading. It is a highly technological space, but it's masquerading as a, as a third world country. So you have these really interesting juxtapositions between um, kind of market scenes and then a really techno- uh, technological landscape that is very angular and geometric and shiny and, and neon. We both felt the film was very dark in terms of the way it was lit, and I'm wondering whether that's as a way to emphasise the luminescence or the the neon quality of, of a really technological space um i don't know but and, and also an animated space an, Large, uh, yeah. largely all animated space yes there is a lot of again and then there, there's that split between technology that we see and animation that we see through uh metamorphosis and black panther's costume that emerges out of his necklace uh, and then some really nice kind of faux long takes where shorter cuts are digitally stitched together. So a, a fight sequence that takes place um, in a casino, for example, that, that is really f- structured by two longer sequences that are digitally stitched together. So yeah, the, the, a lot of the technology and the, the computerization of 
the film and the superhero genre that arguably has also exploded on the on the back of the arrival of digital technology and computer graphics because um, we can now render these amazing worlds. I, there we are clearly meant to be be seeing the the technology, but we can we can keep talking about technology. Well, I just I just think it's interesting, sort of juxtaposing the opening <coughs> shots of Wakanda, yes, with that small bit of Oakland we get. That feels very photographic, that first bit to me. And maybe that's just because I'm, you know, that's a real space in the real world and it's as yes. simple as that. Obviously, fantasy spaces require a certain amount of technological manipulation. Uh, but um, I think what you're saying about us being supposed to be able to see the technology is perhaps where I'm, I'm trying to articulate here is that I think you're supposed to notice Wakanda is a CGI utopian mm paradise yes um and i think you're supposed to notice that they are really in a space that looks very much like oakland california i don't know whether they actually shot there but they're certainly in a tower block and they're on a basketball court and all this kind of stuff so I there's an interesting thing going on there whereby um the film is enunciating its own fantasy space through quite a overt cgi i'm not saying it looks fake Although it does, but not in that way that we often say, oh, look, the CGI looked fake, therefore I was uninterested. It's very engaging. Is it the impossible space. then? Is it, is, it, is it, you know, visually real or perceptionally yeah. real, but it's also clearly impossible? Yeah, and I think it's impossible because of the, the sort of the way the um, technology is rendered in the film. And the technology is very, very digital yes. and very, very abstract. And it's not very mechanical. There aren't, you know... For, there's lots of sort of gadgets and things in the movie. There's a there's a character in it. Who, the character's name Shuri. Shuri, who I'm afraid you're just going to call Q because uh, I keep forgetting her name to be honest. But uh, because I'm not very good with character names or pronunciations, but Shuri I can manage. Um, but um, but this this figure who's very very interesting in technology. It's not very mechanical. All the suits are these things that sort of appear and disappear almost like computer bites. Uh, planes are piloted. Are piloted through um, holograms and simulations of, of 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 graphics. Everything's very graphic led, so it's like a sort of Apple playpen uh, in a way. This, uh, this yes, this Wakandan space. So you know, the technology isn't a mechanical technology; it's a digital technology. So is that something to do with? Everything is virtual and automatic, and there's a um, one of the descriptions of the technology in the in the film is that it is fully automated, and we certainly see a sense of uh, the electronic. So everything is rendered or created through computer, and then when we see it fracture and break down and, and disintegrate, we see the yeah the bytes and the wireframes uh, and almost the code, the visualization of code as it yeah. all sort of um, comes crashing down. And so absolutely, it's, it's, but it's interesting that, that Wakanda is this highly technological space that is rendered in this way that is impossible and, and, and sort of impossi impossibly utopian as a function of this technology, when the narrative itself is about the invisibility of Wakanda at the same time, that people within the film are unaware, they, they haven't visited it, it is masquerading as a third world country, so it is this technological space that hides behind the veneer of a, of a kind of... Um, a less than uh, utopian image of, I don't know, a particular country or a, a particular third world country. So isn't it interesting that in a film that shows us the electronic bites, the lights and the bites and of, of digital animation, it's also about having access to that technology. And this is, I think, where race comes in, is that there is a certain attribution of technology to black identity in a way that is, I don't know, doesn't sit the same with regards to the, the white characters in the film. In what sense? In the sense that the way in which black identity is negotiated is through the lens of fantasy and science fiction, which is itself is served by the technology and animation that is, is kind of used in the film. Yeah. And so there is a, I think there's a really interesting way in which fantasy and or science fiction through this use of technology is being used to critique or to examine and to reflect upon uh, black people's identity within society. And so we and we will we'll get onto this, but certainly I think that the technology in CGI in the film has this kind of political purpose in a way that we perhaps can't speak of in, in other Marvel films. Um, there's something very interesting in the way the film is made of technology and as you say the way technology is itself represented and who it's who it's given over to 
Um, and one, so one of the characters in the film, played by Martin Freeman, Everett Ross, says when he's trying to pilot this virtual um, aeroplane come helicopter come kind of flight thing in a simulation, says, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And the other characters, are, we'll, we'll sort it out. We'll pilot it for you. Mm. And so there is some really interesting... I, I'll talk more a bit about control because I do think the film is about different regimes and registers of, of control. And so we... The film, the characters in the film are frequently talking about Wakanda as this place. So Ulysses Claw, played by Andy Serkis, talks about uh, Wakanda as a technological marvel. We have this fully automated technologized spectacle. Um, and it's really about the tech of Wakanda, and that's what I'm interested in. I have great things to show you, brother. Here are your communication devices for Korea. Unlimited range, also equipped with audio surveillance system. Check these out. Remote access Kimoyo beads, updated to interface directly with my sand table. Ah. And what are these? The real question is, what are those? <laughs> Why do you have your toes out in my lap? But you don't like my royal sandals. I wanted to go old school for my first day. Alex, I'm going to have to interrupt you there, or given that this is a pre-recorded interruption, I'm going to have to interrupt myself. Uh, I want to talk about blog posts. And particularly, I want to talk about the kinds of people that we'd love to hear from to talk about this relationship between fantasy and animation. Sure, um, I think that's a good thing to talk about. I assume we only want to hear from academics and people who work at universities. That's probably correct, right? We're, we're those kind of people. You could not be more wrong. Oh, really? While we are interested in a sort of scholarly approach, we're equally interested in practitioners, uh, those who work within animation, those that work within fantasy cinema. Um, how is how do you see those two things playing out? How do uh, how does fantasy work within the context of animation and creative practice? Equally, how does animation work for those that are invested in fantasy? Right. Okay. And what about fans? Would we want fans to get involved, or again, are we pretty much uh, excluding them from the conversation? Alex, you're barking up the wrong tree. Right, okay. We'd, lo we'd love I must, to. I must read the memos that yes. you sent me. Visit the website yeah. fantasy-animation.org. We've been through this. <laughs> Fans, we'd love to hear from you. If you dress up as fantasy characters, if you dress up as animated characters, if you dress up at all, do let us know. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, just just talk to us about how, how you see fantasy. Um, fantasy, it seems, is for everyone. It's very popular. If you've been to a recent fan event, you're going to a fan event, you'd like to invite us to a fan event, do get in touch. Yeah, okay. And how, how would they get in touch and what would they do if they wanted to write something for one of our sites? Alex, you need to look at the website. Okay. There are many ways to do so. As I said, you can visit the website, fantasy-animation.org. You can follow us on Twitter at fananimresearch, or you can search for us on Facebook. We try and keep these things up to date. There's lots of information. So if you want to contribute to a blog post, you want to hear us again on a podcast, you want to join our mailing list, you'd like to talk to us about the kinds of characters that you dress up as, let us know. Sounds good to me. What should we do now then? Let's. Well, you're going to look at the website and I'm going to get back to the show. Uh, this is an audio format, so uh, listeners can't see what gestures Chris is making. But when you say tech, you're sort of grabbing your fingers together like we're playing with something, like we're yeah. grabbing at something. And actually, I think, I actually, I, that's perhaps something interesting going on here. Now, I feel like the tech, in comparison with, I've written down Iron Man question mark <laughs> here, in comparison with, say, a t the Tony Stark figure of Iron Man, who actually, whose powers aren't too dissimilar from Black Panther in, in that Black Panther has this sort of superhuman quality. It's sort of Black Panther is sort of Tony Stark mixed with uh, Captain America, right? He's a sort of superhuman uh, fighter, but also with this incredibly technologically sophisticated suit that, that adds to his powers. But it's really interesting that Tony Stark is a gizmo inventor, uh, we see him all the time play with things. He's often in his workshop with a spanner. We see sparks. He's a, he's a, he's a sort of, you know, he's the guy fiddling with his car in his, um, in his garage. Yeah, except his car is an Iron Man suit. Whilst you rarely see the nuts and bolts in Wakanda. Everything is very, technology is this sort of uh, almost magical force 
in the movie. Yeah, that there are, there isn't much physicality to it. There's you know there's not much explanation as to why you can do all this thing. There's a vague explanation about this is all because of the metal. What's yes. the metal called? Vibranium. But I was about to say unobtainium, but I think pretty sure that's Avatar. Uh, vibranium apparently gives them all this power, but it gives them the power to do what? Like you can make suits that appear that can be kept in a necklace. These weightless things that are also incredibly powerful. It, it's got a magical quality to it, and I don't know if that's that has anything to do with the racial politics to it. But it's interesting that we have one character in Tony Stark who basically you, you the film is very keen to watch you build his own tech, and we have another character who sort of lives in a world of unlimitless possibility that the film sort of doesn't want to bog down in the nitty-gritty of how and why but just enjoys the limitless possibility of it all well that's that that's an interesting dichotomy between magic and technology yeah one of the lines in the film is that the the world of wakanda and all these sorts of possibilities um and actually through the character of everett ross who gets sort of transported from the real world into wakanda and so through him we see you know, he is our surrogate to what, what is all this? And the way that the world of Wakanda is explained to him is that it is not by magic, by technology. And they are, they are explicitly divided in the way that the fantasy of his experience and the fantasy of the space is being explained away. That this is not magic, actually. That this is not some far-reaching magical space in the mould of, mm. say, Doctor Strange. Um, this is not... This is not mystification. This is they, this can all be explained away through yes, vibranium, but but issues of technology, and that that's a really interesting. The way that the fantasy is qualified. But, but can it? No, I don't think I don't. Yeah, I think the film is. believes that. Um, but I think you're right that we we enjoy as spectators seeing Iron Man work with his own body as a way of wielding power in response to his own sort of profession as a, effectively an arms dealer. Um, but this is also not. Captain America and kind of augmented biology. This is this is something else. This is really not about the origins of technology in the way that Iron Man is, but it's about the outcome and what you then do with with wielding this technology. It's also it's good and bad. It's also not about individual agency. It's about collective yes. identity, and that's really important. It's it's Wakanda that gives yes. him the power to exist as, as Black Panther. It's it's the legacy and traditions and culture of Wakanda, not his own ability to invent things. Yes, and he's at the start of the film, because Black Panther is a, is, a, is a label that he's yeah, inherited yeah. and passed on in, 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 the, in the kingdom, if you like. Which, so. which is also interesting. I think this is the only hereditary superhero, therefore. Uh, yes, we see. Oh, is Ant Man and uh, what the Wasp is hereditary, right? Yes, kind of. So in Ant Man and the Wasp, Mike with uh, Hank Pym uh, and his wife, whose name escapes me, but it's played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. They are sort of they have been these characters, and they pass it on yeah, begrudgingly okay. because the tech is there to to be able. And we also have family. There are family networks that play in in the Iron Man movie. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But I think this is. And actually, and this is misleading because the film should really be called Black Panthers because two characters assume that role within the film. Yep. T'Challa himself, um, played by Chadwick Boseman, and uh, Michael B. Jordan's character, as you mentioned earlier, Killmonger. So there are two Black Panthers here, and, and it's really about who's the good and who, who wields who wields that power in a re- um, responsible manner. And yeah. One does in service of Wakanda, and one does in service of something else entirely. So I'm trying to think why I think this film pushes far more towards fantasy than science fiction. And if people want a definition of, of those two words, I'll try and provide it very quickly. But but it, to be honest, I, I'm bored of even having to. Uh, it's all slippery, it's all murky, but I guess um, to prize them apart, science fiction is the celebration of the technically possible and fantasy is the celebration of the impossible. And I think this movie is much more of a sort of space opera fantasy than it is a sort of realistic... You know, Batman always strikes me as a sort of science fiction movie in that it's it's keen to stress the possibility of it all. This has this sort of fantasy space, this Wakandan fantasy space, that, that all things are possible thanks to their seemingly unlimitless technological potential but the technological potential is just sort of a you may as well call it a force you may as well call it a smoke screen to, to, to do things that um are fun to do and can be played with so i so i guess my the question that provokes that i'll try and answer but probably need a bit of thinking time so i'm going to pass it over to chris is like uh why have a fantasy rather than a science fiction space why have wakanda as a almost fairyland rather than uh, technological metropolis is that got something to do with what the film's trying to say about race? Is is it important that this be a fantasy 
and not something that's, you know, that's not um, simply possible. It has to have this sort of, you know, magical quality to it. Or am I just riffing on labels here? No, I think that the science fiction fantasy, the sort of knotted relationship yeah. between the two is important to the way the film figures ideas of, of black identity and, and issues of kind of Afrofuturism. So this idea coined by Mark Derry in the, in the early 90s that uses or is a, a kind of a, a label or a way of thinking about black identity through the lens or the rubric or the framework of science fiction and fantasy that examines black identity through technology it uses and certainly in this film technology and CGI is used in service of an Afrofuturist aesthetic which allows the film to engage with these themes of alienation of otherness progression oppression uh, and as you mentioned earlier these utopic visions so I think science fiction and fantasy are really important to what the film is trying to do in that kind of political um, project but for me it was actually more it felt more science fiction interesting but where fantasy did rear its head is within so within the world of Wakanda that was very um, technological and uh, I think kind of sci-fi in the way that it used it, it reminded me of Tron Legacy in the way that it was very Daft Punk. See, I, see very, I would argue Tron Legacy is a fantasy rather than a yeah. science fiction movie. So, but so, maybe maybe I'm maybe it's because I'm sensitive to the labels and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But to me, Tron Legacy or Star Wars or something like that is is a fantasy film cloaked in different clothing because Tron Tron may as well be Oz. Um, I, I'm bringing back a feature, by the way. Alex's obligatory uh, Wizard of Oz reference of the week. Uh, they mentioned Kansas. They uh, they mentioned the Wizard in Black of Oz in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you think you are, Kansas? Well, that's okay, um, but that's but that isn't that. That's the film trying to announce that this is a fantasy space. That's what I mean. I, I think it's dressed up like a computer world, but actually, it may as well be Oz or Wonderland or anything mm. like that. It's a space with very not very clearly defined rules where all things are possible thanks to this MacGuffin. Device. So to me, this is a fantasy. A science fiction movie would be a film that sort of is very keen to stress how all this happened. And I don't think this is that keen to do that. It's not really interested in how Wakanda come, came into being and or, or, or announcing any kind of causal through line so that audiences go, oh yeah, okay, so if this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened, we'd have Wakandas everywhere. It, yes, I it's, see. It's, it's a space of magic. Well, is, is the idea that the, the Wakanda is a, is a fantasy of how science and information and a kind of computer tech can be used? Um, the reason I ask is that, for me, it, was, it felt kind of science fiction-y, uh, regardless of the sort of critical overlaps with fantasy. But what struck me was that there are fantasy sequences embedded within the scenes in Wakanda. So when these characters... Um, and now let me get this right, that they ascend to another plane, uh, the, ancestral, the ancestral, plane. plane. the ancestral plane, where space and time collapse and characters can revisit scenes from their own, this is the twice told, you know, can revisit scenes mm -hmm. within the film that we've seen, but they are now the adult versions of those characters. Um, that for me was a moment of sort of extreme, obvious signposting of fantasy. And that felt different to me than the fantasy of the science fiction and the, the tech that I'd seen up until that point, that fantasy was something that could occur within the science fiction space of Wakanda. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, I think we're getting bogged down in semantics a little bit, which is, which is fun to do because we're academics and we yeah. like getting bogged Bog away. down in semantics. Um, but I, I guess the, 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 the broader issue is that like, what is Wakanda enacting or doing or being and to me it reminded me of, of a concept called the supernatural being which is um by Todorov I mean he's talking about sort of genies and things like that but in a way where you can see Wakanda as a supernatural being and uh he argues that the supernatural being exists within narratives to give a give people a sense of a, as in readers a sense of agency beyond their own capabilities as an individual on this planet. It's to enact new modes of agency. The, the genie can do anything they want. Uh, they can create whatever they want into being. So in a way, basically, the genie is the ultimate manifestation of our own narcissism. Uh, if you've ever wanted to uh, make the world like you want it to be rather than make it like it is, uh, you, have a, you, you, are a, you are wanting to be a genie. Yeah, And I think Wakanda can be seen as a sort of African-American, uh, well, obviously African in the story, but I think African-American in terms of what it's speaking to, supernatural being. It is, it, is, it is the space where a version of African identity can exist without the 
the you know the doggedness of of colonial legacy without the spectre of racial inequality and it's almost like this is this is this is the space where blackness can be untamed well yes and and, and the film tries to enact that relationship with with the early scene so once we've had the sort of introduction we've had Oakland 92 we've had the introduction to Wakanda and then we jump back to London and what yep. we jump back to is a museum of artifacts and the kind of colonial space of the museum uh, and the reappropriation of artifacts um, or the reappropriation of objects as artifacts um, that can be examined behind a glass case uh, and so that's a really interesting scene that takes place in this museum the museum of the fictional museum of great yeah Britain. it's also not the british museum but well well that's us london dwellers griping about things. it's the museum of uh, uh, kind of great britain um somewhere in america yeah and yeah. and what's it again what's interesting about that sequence is that um the premise of the sequence is that killmonger or then eric but killmonger as he becomes is is asking the museum curator to to take him through some of the artifacts and what what their history is, and it's then when he starts speaking, we get a sense of his motivation. This is before we find out his other motivation, perhaps his ulterior, truthful motivation. We get a motivation that is very much rooted in that kind of um, imperialist fan oh, fantasy, but that that imperial history that is different to the way that black identity black identity in the Museum of Great Britain is a series of artifacts that can be. Um, removed from their context and placed behind a glass case. Whereas black identity in Wakanda is, is nothing of the sort. And so you have the way in which black identity is being used in these two disparate spaces. Um, but no, I, think you're, I think you're right. that the And that, that leads me to think about issues of control. For me, the film is all about different moments of control. From the moment we're introduced to Black Panther himself as a character who um, is warned that he, you know, don't forget not to freeze, you know, in the middle of combat, don't freeze. Uh, right through to uh, Shuri, who's this, who's the kind of the Q figure. Yes. Um, always good to substitute um, a young black female with an older with white gentleman. With, with yes. Desmond Llewellyn. With Desmond yeah. Llewellyn, um, played by Letitia Wright, who is very much in control of Wakanda and how Wakanda works, mm -hmm. um, and also other issues of control in terms of temperament. And that's really the thing that splits T'Challa and, and Killmonger, the way in which they they are both Black Panthers, but the way in which they control themselves. Um, and their temperament is very central to the way we are supposed to read them as the throne is the same, but the yeah. person who sits on it is different. So that's it, because if, if, if we take what I said about Wakanda is a space where black and identity can be expressed uninhibited, yes. unshackled unsha by the power structures that has contained it for so long, mm. mainly white imperialist depression, if Wakanda is the space where that doesn't have to be so, uh, the central question the film poses is what does an individual do with that space? Do you go with uh, what's the protagonist that is not called Black, Black Panther I, I knew I'd forget his name. T'Challa. T'Challa. Do you go with T'Challa's route, which actually he changes but at the beginning is to separate oneself from the problems of the world to isolate oneself and to retreat and to hide? Or do you go with Killmonger's approach which is to sort of um, take back that which was stole from it by any force net necessary. That is, and that's basically that's basically what the film asks us to think about through its use of fantasy. Well, and also through its use of animation, because yes. if the film is about black people, black society, black yeah. culture using technology to become a world leader, but a hidden world leader in the case of the film, uh, and in Black Panther where we have Wakanda as this secret global superpower that retreats behind this facade mm. um, and sits within a world that is controlled by these white power structures, then what we're really seeing is, is yeah, two, two potential, for, like a forking path between how black, black identity is, I don't know, is, ne is negotiated or... As you say, the the route that characters may take in their do you do you reclaim or retreat? And clearly, the film is suggesting in that final battle between the two characters that that they're pretty even. In but but ultimately, it's about well, but also um, the the central uh, it changes, doesn't it? Is, yes. is that the answer isn't is neither? Those are the two extremes, and the answer is somewhere in between the two. Uh, in that classic Hollywood paradigm, we, we come together in the middle, don't we? But, but you know, it, it, it's not to retreat, but neither is it to reclaim, um, at least through 
violence or anything like that. Mm. And I guess like there, there there might be a certain soft pedaling to it, but at least it enacts the space that's actually quite radical. Yeah. Even though it's not a villain, um, it's still quite a compelling argument. It's a classic villain that you understand the point. Well, you made a point actually before we before we went on air, as yeah. it were, uh, about the villain, the choice of villain in the film. That actually, uh, you know, this is a film with largely um, uh, a black cast and yeah. with, a, with a black director, so Kubler, the director, and then it's a, a, a real kind of wealth of, of of talent, really. Then there are two, and there are two white characters or white actors in it: Andy Serkis um, and Martin Freeman. And Martin Freeman very famously announced that on set they were referred to as the Tolkien white guys. Um, and so, and that's interesting because yeah. you know, the connections mm-hmm. to fantasy—that's a nice little, nice little node, if you like. Um, but I'm interested in how white identity is figured in the film as well. That's that's by the by. Um, but it's also, and you mentioned yeah before before we started that actually it's refreshing, radical that it's the that it's not the white. Well, certainly Andy Serkis's character is set up to be the villain, but isn't the villain. And, I'm, and I'm not sure it's refreshing or radical. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was interesting because I can see. In the planning stages of this movie, you go, right, so we're not going to make the villain the white guy in a movie about imperial At last legacy. Again. Yeah. You know, when, when, when so many times the villain's the black guy, yeah. you're not going to make the villain the white guy when the hero's black. Um, uh, but I think what it allows it to do is it allows it to be a negotiation of black identity, you know, a, an argument about two sides of, of black identity. It's almost like, yeah, I was thinking of... Um, uh, X-Men a little bit. So the, the central battle between uh, Professor X and Magneto is very often read as a uh, sort of metaphor of Martin Luther King versus uh, Malcolm X. Uh, and it's almost like a reclaiming of that metaphor because yeah. in a way that that is exactly what is going on, isn't it? but it's two old white, well, British guys um, doing it in X-Men. Here we have two young... Uh, virile African-American men, one uh, playing um, a Wakandan. Uh, well, both Wakandans, but, uh, but uh, both, um, both African-American men in real life uh, playing, uh, playing that thing out as the protagonists of their own story rather than having white metaphors for black problems, uh, which, is, which is really interesting. And, and I think the thing that they're young, virile, muscle-clad African-American men is part of what's going on here. I wanted to actually... Uh, I don't know if you had any thoughts about the use of animation in terms of performance, in terms of bodies, but I've certainly got written digital bodies, digital performance, because obviously we talk about um, these actors, but actually a lot of this film is, is rendered through CGI, and I wondered if, if that plays into what we're talking about at all. Yeah, well, it, 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 I was thinking when you were talking about the um, accessibility and the suitability of the superhero genre to enact out these kinds of discussions and the, um, the superhero genre as itself being a, a space of augmented bodies generally, and, and actually that connection with animation, if animation has the ability to augment and deform and destabilize the real it does so certainly within the context of the superhero genre and the fantasy genre through its use of bodies um certainly so the first x-men is is sort of 2000 um, and that really kickstarts that first wave that i mentioned earlier of superhero movies it's no surprise and i mentioned this earlier that there is this connection between technology and the superhero and that part of the perhaps the rebirth of the superhero genre more broadly and perhaps even also the fantasy film if, if these things ever went away is the use of technology and certainly the first wave of writing on digital animation was geared towards digital bodies and so there's lots of writers by um, people like Lisa Purse and Lisa Bode who have written on agile, this is Lisa Purse's term, agile digital uh, stru- uh, agile digital sculptures, I beg your pardon, um, and it's really about yeah that first wave of digital bodies and how we as spectators are, are going to understand bodies that are now no longer pro-filmic but live action footage functions as raw material. Just just for some of the listeners who aren't familiar with the jargon, what does pro-filmic mean? Uh, the events that were kind of happening really in front of the camera. Events are pro-filmic, they are... Things that inf- you record in the real world. Yes. You press go, you record it on your camera and you stop. That's and so, pro-filmic. And the pro-filmic event is the, what, what that was, mm-hmm. the event before the camera. Um, so yes, so the, the, the pro-filmic event, the live action footage yeah. is now raw material that is um, subject to further modification. And nowhere do we see this more than in, in, in the bodies. And you get writing about uh, virtual actors or vactors or synthespians 
where suddenly the future of, of acting is, is actually not with the actor, it's with a sort of computer animated digital sculpture. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of writers, audiences are predicting this sort of end game, this synthespian end game. Um, and Tom Hanks, I remember, gave an interview and sort of said, you know, in the future they won't need us. They won't need actors. Um, one wonders who will do the voices, but never mind. Um, and so there's lots of stuff around digital bodies and what digital bodies can do. And, and I'm sure many of the listeners will know, uh, can pick a film from The Matrix to you know, any number of superhero movies where suddenly the digital body takes over from the, the uh, kind of live action human body, if you like. And so there are certain moments in this where the agility of Black Panther is, is an agility that can only be rendered through through animation um, and so yeah I mean it's it's I, I so that's that's really interesting is to try and sort of bring the two worlds together like we always do on this podcast of fantasy and animation if we're saying that Wakanda is a fantasy space within the story because and one of the ways it announces itself as this fantasy is that, is that it's so clearly all CGI yeah um, versus the urban reality of Oakland which is all profilmic all photographed um, and it's the film sort of sets up by that dichotomy at the beginning of a world of reality, but a reality that's problematic and and uh, uh, grounded in issues of imperialism and grounded in issues of racial tension, and another which breaks free those shackles, but it's pure fantasy. The body of Black Panther, in a way, is a way where these two worlds meet, and that Black Panther. He's a superhero. He's a super person. Uh, he is a person that is both photographed and profilmic. He is a character that is both real in a real space and subject exists. to modification. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's so he is he is he is black subjectivity incarnate in terms of this movie in that it is it is it is, it is real life but extended. Yes, and so actually, that's a, 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 the, the the parallels between the two worlds as they collide and mm -hmm. intrude and coexist. And it also gets into sort of issues of, of obviously when we talk about fantasies being the opposite of reality. There's something inherently political about that in in that we're calling something reality as something as the way it is, the way it is right now, whilst fantasy is the expression of the way things could be, or the way things might be, or the way things aren't, but can still can still. Uh, be meaningful even though so uh, a theorist called Rosemary Jackson talks about the idea that fantasy is inherently political because the act of fantasizing is a way of articulating one's dissatisfaction with reality and it is therefore inherently subversive as an as an act well, um, it, well equally, and, and, and this is this is exactly what's going on in Black Panther well yeah well equally to, to, as you say to stake a claim for a film or, or for anything to be realistic is is this political statement of it this is the way it was realistic you know realism is this you know to yeah. define realism it's would be to define a set of conventions that change over time yeah. um, and so the the way in which the I, well I guess one of the questions would be that I wonder whether or is it the case that the Oakland of 1992 is a is as a statement of the way that the film is articulating the real is equally as a political statement oh, as as the fantasy of Wakanda. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know where I sit on that. I'm reminded of the book Super Cinema. There's a book called Super Cinema by William Brown, which talks about um, CGI in contemporary filmmaking as the analogy of the superhero. In that, quite a lot of CGI likes to pretend like it is. Um, Photograph, but it's obviously not. So if you think about something like Birdman, Birdman is an example of super cinema because it's not one take. It clearly isn't one take, but it looks like one take. So it blends what we think about as photographic grammar with CGI capabilities. Um, this is a superhero movie uh, that's kind of interesting, that, isn't it? Because actually, I would argue what's really interesting about Wakanda is it isn't super cinema. It's not pretending it's. It's not pretending that it isn't a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but where we get moments of super cinema are when Black Panther does something incredible in a, in a single take that isn't a single take. Yes, and I actually, what, what I quite liked about Black Panther um, as a character is that he's not... One, he's not you know uh, a high school student who gets bitten by a spider on a school trip, sure. but actually he's not somebody who has to masquerade as anything other than a superhero. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to convince other characters that he is... Uh, an ordinary, and this is where the analogy to, to kind of brown super cinema works. Yeah. That that he is not Superman pretending to be Clark Kent. He never has to pretend to be Clark Kent. He's o he's o only ever that character. Um, but what he the, the the costume that he puts on is the is the the kind of digi the digitalness and and, and the kind of well, well the real that. the real act of concealment and costuming going on here is the idea that Wakanda is a third world country. Yes, that's the secret identity. Yeah, right. 
Um, so there we go. So, so the film feeds into this idea of concealment versus revealment through its interplay between photographed imagery and CGI imagery at the yes. same time. Some CGI imagery it reveals, uh, some in CGI imagery it can see conceals, and some CGI it sort of is sort of operating in that space in between. So that's interesting that that Wakanda is itself an example of it is a superhero space it's it's a, it's an identity that is very much superheroic because it it tries to masquerade as a, a a journalist for the daily planet yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah i agree i think there's there's an analogy in that that works really really well uh we've been going on for a while we should uh, Have we? yeah 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 so everyone's going right okay is this podcast going to end i've stopped running now well, well people um, won't notice because presumably we'd have edited it down so it will be the perfect length uh chris it, uh, doesn't understand my working week uh, I see. um no none of that's all of that's staying in uh including this conversation so i guess is there any final notes we should uh discuss anything you wanted to mention uh, we sort of left the plot behind there, but obviously we set up who the protagonist is, who the antagonist is, um, and the final battle. Relatively spoiler-free, though. Relatively spoiler-free. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, to be honest, it's not a movie that can be spoilt that much because I worked out pretty much every beat that was going to happen while I was watching it, but still had a great time. Is that because it's twice told? Well, that's because it's <laughs> mythic. And yes. Myth, and myths, myths, we all know how myths go, but it's the, the act of telling them is, that is worth the while. I mean, I'd like to. I mean, the only thing I'd like to, to end on is return to this idea of uh, metaphor and allegory that I think sure. we've touched on with regards to fantasy and touched on with regards to animation. And here, the two are kind of coming together, framed by discourses of Afrofuturism. Yep. So that idea that Mark Derry proposes in his essay "Black to the Future," which is potentially the best name for an essay. Academia is is, is a you know work out the title first and then sure. work your way work, back. Work your way backwards. Um, so in "Black to the Future," he talks about the relationship between black uh, society, black identity. Um, and how that is figured through, or certainly black, the struggles of black identity and culture as how they are figured through technology. Um, and so here it seems, and, and a lot of the, the writing around the film is that Afrofuturism is having a moment as a result of a film like Black Panther. So um, this whole idea of the film being read, or could be read, interpreted metaphorically, um, your important point about it being a collective, it's Black Panther, but it's really the collective uh, identity of Wakanda, which I think feeds into your idea that it is itself a super has, holds a superhero identity because it it masquerades as the as the everyday, um, and so again that feeds into this whole thing about concealment, control, um, and how technology might be used to sort of in terms of firepower and resources, um, how it might be used for kind of good or bad purposes. It's a terrific. Clearly, there's lots to say about the film. Yeah, I think so, and I think. Um... As I say, as I started, when we started the podcast, I think it's a movie that doesn't necessarily, because it's painting a very broad canvas and because it's speaking to a lot of people, I'm not sure the best thing to say about Black Panther is that it's saying this mm. or it's saying that. It's more about like what conversations the film is inviting because I don't think ultimately, I think ultimately it's quite safe in its central rhetoric, yeah. which is that it you know basically does that classical Hollywood thing of on the one side this, on the other side that, meet in the middle. You know, uh, and it reckon and it is reconciliatory in its thematic. It fixes its problems and ties itself up in a nice bow. But I guess, um, you know, I'm not someone that believes that just because a film ties itself in a bow that that, that means that the audience feels that way. You know, uh, often films can end on a reconciliatory nature, and then you can come out having a massive argument about them. Uh, we talk about sort of 50s melodramas being full of these things we call it like false endings right where within the last 30 seconds everything's tied up but it doesn't really feel like everything's tied up well I don't think everything feels like it's tied up here I think um, is that not a, I mean I wonder whether that's a symptom of the fact it is a franchise film sure and the, there is and you've written a, a blog post on, on the Avengers film that, that talks about this sort of inconsequential action and so yes it is tied up within the relatively narrow context of the film but ultimately, and this is where the mid-credits and the post-credit sequences of the film work to sort of enact the pulling of that bow as it gradually unravels yeah. and, and, and then we're off into the next adventure. There's something potentially conservative and particularly radical about that. There's something potentially conservative because basically you know how the chess game is going to be played out, right? You know, I, I, you know, there's a moment in this movie, spoiler alert, where it looks like 
he's died, Black Panther. Yeah. I wasn't convinced he was, seeing as that I both know that there is a sequel scheduled for this movie and also have seen the, Avengers, before, yeah. the Avengers movie, which is set after this, featuring, uh, featuring the same guy. So, you know, on one level, it reduces what can be done and what can be told. And there is that sort of awful feeling you sometimes get in these movies that the whole thing is a sort of commercial holding pen where they basically like, give us, our, give us your money for two hours and then we'll see you again in six months. But on the other hand, by having stories that refuse to be resolved and you know won't be resolved, perhaps there's more space for them to, to be about basically irreconcilable things. Yeah. Yeah? Um, because they don't have to be tied up in a bow because the whole pleasure is, is it keeps rolling. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. That it's really about the, it's about the conversations that you have between characters, between worlds, yeah. between fantasy and dare I say the, the different fantasies each character embodies and enacts and, and asks you to think about as a, as a, as a spectator yeah so the, the, the lack of obligation to tie things up in a neat bow broadly speaking allows that sense of freedom where it can play with big ideas and perhaps be read as about things so yeah I think lots of fantasy uh, stories are sequels are chronicles are things yeah. like that and there's definitely something in that when you when you engage in a type of storytelling that is um, limitless, sometimes it's hard to limit that limitless potential to to 120 minutes or 300 pages. Yeah. So I guess we really we really should wrap it up yes. now because we've probably been in a nice a little bow. <laughs> in a nice little bow, but the conversations keep going this very much, true. very much like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This podcast goes on and on. So if um, you'd like to get in touch with Black Panther two, three, four, five. Our ideas for blog posts on on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, on fantasy narratives, um, on super cinema, on Spider Man. I tell you what, I'd love I'd love to hear if you're a sort of part of a fan organisation or if you're involved in some sort of Marvel fan fandom. Yeah. There's loads of you out there. Have you been to Comic Con this year? What conversations were being had about this movie there? We'd love to hear from because we Absolutely. we haven't heard we haven't had a blog post from 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 that kind of side of things yet, and it'd be lovely to get one. So if you are out there and thinking. Uh, oh, I've got things to say about this, but I don't think I'm uh, academic-y enough to participate. Just remember that I use the word academic-y yeah. in, a, in, a, in a sentence, and then hopefully that should, uh, should inspire you to come and correct me. Absolutely. So I think on that note, on that academic-y note, we will say goodbye. So thank you very much for, for listening, and we will see you next time. Yes, we will. Take care and goodbye. Bye. Maybe we can still heal you. Why? So you could just lock me up? No. Just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships. Because they knew death was better than bondage. Mm. <sighs>